Welcome to the Thousand Voices podcast. My name is Mujan Askari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews with top female founders in the field of artificial intelligence. Today, we have Raluca Krishan with us. Raluca is the co-founder and CTO of Ethic AI, a London-based startup providing a software solution that aims to eradicate bias from AI and machine learning systems. Raluca is born in Arad, Romania. Uh, she has done a bachelor's degree in economics and literature and she has studied medieval English for her master's at York University, followed with a year of studies at Oxford on English literature. She has over 10 years of experience in data science, working with large clients such as Bank of America, Sony, and Vodafone. Raluca has built a global analytics team for a mobile marketing company, which was successfully listed on Nasdaq and has co-founded another machine learning startup in the past. She is also the winner of Women in AI Awards 2020 Europe and was part of the Way Accelerate startup program. Welcome, Raluca. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. So, Raluca, um, I'm so fascinated about your background and your adventures. You, you know, you have a very, very unique background and studies from literature and economics. How did you end up in data science? Initially, as part of my economic studies, I was I was doing a lot of statistics and I was also taking quite a bit of maths. And after my degree in medieval English, I think it was time to kind of face the real world a little bit. Uh, and look around at some areas where I I could do something that's slightly more practical and kind of impactful for the present day <laughs> rather than for the past. And yeah, I kind of I relied on my general maths knowledge and my stats knowledge to to enter the the sector. And then I realized it was actually a very interesting area. Uh, it developed very rapidly. I started my career about 10, 11 years ago where when technically there was no such thing as data science, I don't think. Um, but people were still doing similar things, just not not quite as advanced. And throughout, it's just been a very fast-changing field, which means it's both interesting and also it just makes you learn a lot of new stuff every day. Wow, that's fascinating. So you are a self-taught data scientist? Did you just learn it by yourself? Um, my first role, um, there was a, a bit, a bit of a bootcamp. I think it was a two month, uh, bootcamp, uh, for coding and for some, certain, some methodologies and, you know, understanding how to deal with databases and so forth, which, you know, was pretty intense, uh, but very useful later on. And afterwards it was a lot about the, you know, experience and looking around, seeing what people are doing. And just kind of trying to do as many things, try try out as many things as possible. Really, that's that's the only the only way forward in the field. Right. So you started actually learning coding and what we could call a data science uh, from a boot camp, right? Yeah. It was. It wasn't. Um, so it was a, a part of a, a job. Don't get me wrong, but uh, they were recruiting. I mean, my background. I was 
clearly they, they tested me on maths quite heavily. So I managed to pass, but they knew that I didn't have programming background like from university. So they had developed a program where they would teach people because they were open to well their graduates were mostly maths to be honest but uh the the people that were bringing on board but I think I kind of slipped through let's say (laughs) (laughs) and what what did you know uh, trigger your interest in data science why why did you get interested in that I think the what kept it interesting for me was kind of my first assignment it was it was very similar to um, analysis. And while I know that I have, you know, very non-traditional background, I think looking at, um, you know, analyzed texts in foreign languages like Latin and so forth is not terribly different from having to write programs in other languages and um, also interpreting data. The skill sets are a little bit similar. Of course, there's a lot of catching up to do on the uh, pure engineering and productionizing front, I think. That's where abstraction comes in handy. So, you know, wow. nothing should, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not a discouraging thing. I mean, I probably would have uh, been more interested in computer science earlier on if I kind of knew what I was just more focused on more theoretical things. And that was fine. I, I did that and then I, I did something different and that's fine. Yeah. That's that's amazing. That's so fascinating. So <laughs> coming to the data science and AI world, we, with the advancement of AI technologies, bias in AI products is a huge challenge today, right? It's one of the very hot topics today, actually. So many companies are trying to solve that to ensure that AI applications and products are not biased against a specific group of people, such as women or minorities. Um, what made you believe that this is a cause we need to stand for, stand up for and fight with your company, Ethics AI? It's very hard to put it. I think that the social mission element of it is very strong. The way Ethics came to be was that myself and my co-founder, Iris, we joined a incubator accelerator kind of a program, not really knowing each other, but that program would focus on social mission. And as part of testing a few ideas within that, we we decided in the end on this algorithmic bias problem because the potential impact of solving it is, or at least mitigating it, is huge. I mean, it's amplifying, you know, imagine every bias decision made by a human. Imagine many, you know, the equivalent in multiples made by a machine. Uh, And then imagine fixing that just even by a little bit. We're talking a lot of people impacted by it on something that is doable. Like I said, not complete removal, but at least some mitigation. Mm -hmm. So it just just feels like it's a ripe time to to do this. Do you think we ever get to reduce all that bias? Do you think it's ever possible? I think it depends on theoretical frameworks that people use. And I'm sure that there's schools of thought in academia that, you know, are very worried about, you know, leaving systems in the world that have even a little bit of bias. And I think that's more like the regulatory approach as well. Um, at the same time, the a consensus seems to be that it's a lot more about mitigation and understanding that while regulation is built in a certain way, for instance, in Europe, in the US, it's a little bit different. If we don't acknowledge that the problem is there, but we're just telling companies, oh, you you can't discriminate, but without really 
letting them measure it and report on what's happening, then it's not it's not going to be conducive to them doing anything, you know, forget about reducing it, just minimizing it a little bit. So I think it's it's not a clear cut answer. We shouldn't be, you know, I think companies shouldn't be discriminating, but does this mean that you should be outlawing machine learning for certain decisions or even simpler models? Uh, probably not, because that means that we'd go back to the times when people would be making those decisions. And, you know, that wasn't any less biased either. <laughs> True. Yeah, so it's about yeah. yeah, these different types of Yeah, we're all full of our biases and discriminations and um, how how bad is this, you know, bias products today? Like do you have you experienced yourself any bias or discriminative product service yourself? Uh what was your experience? Um as a consumer, I think it's very hard to tell. Uh you'd have to really understand the system to understand that there is a there's an issue. For instance, with privacy, it's a very clear-cut issue. You know, your data is being shown by, you know, it's being released by the company, some other company that it shouldn't be releasing it to, and you never agreed to it. That's a kind of observable fact, even by a consumer, potentially, if they get hacked or whatever. But with, let's say, a loan decision, it's very hard to tell, well... I should have gotten the loan again, you know, ahead of this other person because you don't really have information for the other person. Yeah, you don't know actually what you lost or what what opportunity you missed exactly, because yeah. you what they they give you as as the amount of loan, yeah. but the transparency is you know what is missing, right? Yeah, though I mean it's a good move on the part of GDPR that there's a level which companies have to at least make transparent the criteria for the decisions for a certain individual. Um, And I think that's moving in the right direction. I think, however, there's, even if something is transparent, doesn't mean that it's not biased, basically, right? So uh, again, depending on the angle. So I think it's just regulators still do have quite a bit of work to do to understand how to actually regulate this area. True. I'm t- talking about discrimination and bias, like in real world, has it been difficult for you being a female entrepreneur in an industry where we see mostly white men working in AI and data science? Have you gone through any discrimination? So I think, first of all, I think that any entrepreneur is, is whether regardless of you know their demographic background, is, is struggling often. I mean, it's, it's a challenge to build something. There's a lot of uncertainty involved. And I think there has to be an element of internal validation to kind of match the external one or lack thereof. For, for instance, in my case, if I didn't believe that this is worth doing regardless of the outcome, in a sense... I wouldn't have been able to do it. I think people say this a lot, but you don't really, I'm not sure it's a message that's understood, that you really have to believe in what you're doing. I think, do I feel like there might have been some discrimination? You know, it's it's a very hard answer to give because you don't know, maybe it wasn't the right, you weren't at the right stage for investment, maybe you didn't have the right, whatever, you know, what was needed for a commitment. So from a personal point of view, it's it's a struggle for me to say for sure if there were instances. Um, however, if you look at it on aggregate, I mean, it's virtually impossible that there isn't discrimination given the levels of funding uh, given to, you know, male versus female entrepreneurs. Maybe it is, discrimination is not at the point of investment. Maybe it's 
higher up the funnel, you know, it's maybe fewer women try to become an entrepreneur. I'm not necessarily believing this story, but you know, maybe it's at different points in the tunnel. But the the question, you know, it, it's impossible that it doesn't exist, given that it's I don't know something like below ten percent for women. So it's yeah, yeah. In fact, the total funding that went for female founder startups um, were around four percent so it's it's very low but as you said there are very very various factors linked to it for example female founders ask uh, less um, for funding that versus versus men the so that is also one of the reasons they might actually not get that much funding because the number of requests for funding is also lower Um, you said something very interesting that I really liked about um self-belief and the conviction that you have when you are an entrepreneur you should really believe in your idea and of course along the way you you know face a lot of challenges and that self-belief can help you you know to um, move forward what what is the biggest challenge you face in reaching where you are today I think maybe I'll just focus on the ethic ones, but I think there were times when it was very hard to know that we would be able to keep going, keep doing it. An example, like a day that something happened, that that was the biggest challenge you faced. I think I'm the warrior, so Iris is more relaxed. I think she's more, um, she has more experience and with being an entrepreneur, and I think she has some, a more objective view often than I do, but I think... I was concerned maybe like one, I think one specific day or I was concerned we weren't going to, I don't even remember what it was, <laughs> to be honest, but we weren't uh, going to get to a program or weren't going to get accepted for something, basically. I think it was to do with one of the programs we were on. Um, and I was just so worried about that because I was worried that if we weren't going to get that sign of external validation, we weren't going to be able to keep going. In retrospect, I don't think my worries were at all founded. Uh, I think there was generally no concern about it on the part of anyone. But to me, if that didn't happen, then we wouldn't have continued. And I think that's that's an example, to be honest, but that's the kind of thing that can happen relatively frequently in, in, a, in a startup. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know, like, what is the, because all of us have, you know, like fears, fears of failure, fears of, you know, um, missing something. What, what what was, you know, the biggest fear you had during your um, entrepreneur journey? Something that really, you know, put you on a position that you were really, really, you know, worried and afraid, afraid of failure. When was it? I think there, there's two things that kind of often worry me. What if, you know, what we're doing or what we're thinking about or what we're trying to do, in a sense, is not good enough, you know? And that's, I think, a good fear because that makes me want to think of something better and try something else and see if that works and just improve, you know, just improving things and changing things maybe fundamentally to make them better. And I think that's a great fear to have. I think... The other, the fear around external validation is much more difficult to manage because what what happens is that you're, I mean, you know, I I genuinely believe, let's say that something is worth doing, but if I don't get this other thing, be it funding, uh, you know, some, someone liking my whatever product, whatever it is, then it doesn't matter if I believe it in a sense, you know, (laughs) it's like, Mm -hmm. it won't happen. 
So that's like more like a reality check kind of fear. And I think that's very stressful. That's very stressful. Yeah. And how, how do you come over your fear and, and stress? How do you calm yourself or give yourself the, the right, let's say, advice or motivation? Well, I think this is where it's uh, key that there's like a team going on. I think obviously in, this, in my instance, like there's two kind of co-founders that are kind of, let's say, equally vested in this. And that there's other people, we, we know we have, we have a third co-founder that has been with us for a, a little bit less time, but obviously she's very invested as well. And there's a team, you know, there, there's advisors, uh, there's a network that kind of helps you see a different side of the story. I think it's very hard for solo entrepreneurs to to do it because they don't have that kind of feedback, positive mm-hmm. feedback, let's say. Right. You have the supportive, yeah. yeah, you have a team who are supportive and they are kind of, you know, they're your um, motivators, right? So they help you along the way. Yeah, yeah. Or something that I might consider problematic, they mm-hmm. don't or vice versa, you know, and then you hear the other side of the story. Yeah, that's also very fascinating. You're, um, if I'm not mistaken, you're a full female uh, founders team, mm-hmm. right? You're all female, and even even some of your employees are are also female. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're a very small team at the moment, but so I, I wouldn't. Yeah, but th- there's an overlap, obviously, between <laughs> one group and the other. So employers and founders, but but yeah, we are more more female at the moment. I. I it's fine by us. It's not, we didn't set out to be like that. How would you define a leader, especially for a woman? How can she be a leader in the various roles and responsibilities that she steps into? How can be, you know, that really strong figure that you want to see? Yeah, I don't, I generally don't think it's a problem for a woman to be a leader. I think that's how do you define it it's not a problem like it's not like if you're a woman you can't I mean I think that's that's crazy you know like I uh, the, the problem is with the perception side it's just hard to get certain things from pe- other people that's it a thousand eyes on me we believe in the power of stories we believe that the stories that we tell to ourselves matter because they define our beliefs and eventually our truth so what's the story that you, Raluca, tell to yourself? If you want to give it even a title, you know, let's say that can be a book, you give it a title. What would be that title of Raluca's story and what would be the story inside? Imagine you're talking to a younger, you're talking to your younger self and you want to tell her, hey, this is the story of Raluca. What would you say? Yeah, that, that's a great question, to be honest. I think it's... I think uh, sometimes people, maybe including myself, have this idea of, I don't know if you're, f- you're familiar with or whether it's a known notion, but um, in the US history at some point there was this thing called Manifest Destiny where basically, you know, people just, it's like your destiny to go west or whatever they were doing, I don't even remember. The, the point is like, y- there is this feeling often that you're, you know, it is your destiny to do something. And that's a very strong motivating factor. And I think I've had an interesting kind of developmental journey. Like I went to school in the States, like I left my hometown kind of by myself. Uh, You know, I had to study relatively well to get there. Like it was all very competitive all the time. And you had this idea of destiny, you know, they went to some of the, you know, one of the better schools in the States and so forth. So it was very motivating to have this idea of destiny. But at some point, 
I think you can't really rely on that. And it's about a plurality of, of not of identities, but it's a plurality of roles and a plurality of, you know, just becoming more mature and understanding that it's not a linear journey. It's a very meandering journey. I think that as a young entrepreneur is much harder than as an older person because it's a little bit easier because you realize that it's things are just likely not to happen like you expect them to because things are not linear. So it's a very comforting knowledge, you know. Maybe the title would be the non-linear life. <laughs> nice, nice, yeah. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Squiggly, squiggly, yeah. Thank you so much, Raluca. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Very fascinated about your story and your journey. Thanks for having me. It was great to hear these questions. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.